a 13-year-old girl is bullied to such extremes that she makes a heartbreaking decision, an irreversible decision. However, this is no straightforward case of bullying. When her 15-year-old brother makes a startling discovery, it will unveil shocking revelations. This is Nordic True Crime. Lynn was a seemingly ordinary, happy-go-lucky 13-year-old girl who lived in the town of Kumla, just outside of Stockholm. Like many teenagers today, she had her own YouTube channel where she posted various everyday teenager videos, which were generally about her everyday life. For example what she had been doing with her friends, things that had happened in school, and at handball training. The videos were often a bit giggly and childish, but then again, she was only a 13-year-old child. But one video in particular was different from her usual uploads. In this video, Lynn was seen addressing hateful comments that she had been receiving on her videos. People had been posting anonymous negative comments about Lynn's appearance. The posts said things like she was fat, ugly, and disturbed. The comments were not just aimed at Lynn. They also said similar things about her mother and father. In this video, Lynn addresses the comments as follows. Quote, Would it make me slimmer just because you tell me I'm fat? No, it wouldn't. And it wouldn't make you any slimmer because you're telling me I'm fat. No, it wouldn't. End quote. At the end of the clip, she talks about one comment in particular, which said, quote, So ugly take your own life, end quote. Lynn says that she deleted that comment as soon as she saw it, explaining in her video that too many people online had been jokingly saying to one another that they should commit suicide. People just don't realize that there is a lot more going on behind these comments. The people making these comments have no idea what effect it has on the person at the other end. During this period, Lynn was also going through a rough time at school, 
and was self-harming. To address this and receive help with her problems, she was having regular meetings with the BUP, which is the Children's and Youth's Psychiatric Organization. Lynn's mother, Susanne, was naturally very worried about her daughter and her situation at school. However, the one thing she didn't know was who exactly her daughter was speaking to on the internet. She has no idea about Lynn's online life. She also thinks that it's a thin line between showing that she cares and being too nosy. She really wants to respect her daughter's privacy and she does her best to show her that she's there for her whenever she needs her. They have a close connection, talking every day, often saying that they love one another. In March of 2013, the school welfare officer gets in contact with Susan, telling her that she received a call from one of Lynn's friends, claiming that Lynn had confided in her, telling her that she was scared of a boy who had seen her naked. He had threatened to spread these naked pictures online. They decide together that the welfare officer should have a talk with Lynn to find out if what her friends told her is true. But Lynn claims that she has no idea what they're talking about. She reassures the welfare officer that she had not received any threats whatsoever. However, Lynn's teacher also calls Susanne after some of Lynn's classmates confide in the teacher, telling her that they are worried for Lynn's well-being. Susan didn't really know what to do. She was worried about her daughter, and at the same time, wasn't really sure about what was going on. Lynn claimed that all was fine, but her mom knew that something was wrong. After weighing up the pros and cons, she decides to try and access Lynn's Facebook page to try and see if she can find any clues as to what's going on in her daughter's life. She knows it's not right for her to invade Lynn's personal life without her permission, but she fears that the consequences of not doing so could be much worse. So after dropping Lynn off at handball practice, she drives home and sits in front of the computer. She didn't know Lynn's Facebook password, but since she had all her email details, she could change her password through her email address and then log in with the new password. 
Suzanne is stunned by what she finds. There are several horrible comments posted about Lynn. Some say how ugly and disgusting she is. Many of these comments are made by people that Suzanne thought were Lynn's friends. But instead, they had been cyber-bullying her, trying to make her feel bad about herself. Suzanne had no idea that her daughter had been subjected to this much hatred. After more searching, she also finds the message concerning the naked pictures of Lynn. Lynn had written to one of her friends saying she was worried that the boy would spread the images online. But Suzanne doesn't find anything else about these pictures besides this one comment. So she turns off the computer and gets in the car to go and pick up Lynn from handball practice. On picking her up, the first thing she says to her mother is, have you hacked my Facebook? Suzanne denies it because Lynn's friend is present, thinking to herself that she will talk to her about it later that evening. She feels so guilty about what she had done and for not being honest with her daughter. When they get back home, Lynn says to her mom, you have hacked my Facebook, to which her mom admits to the accusation. She asks Lynn what's really going on online and if she wants to talk about it. Lynn doesn't want to talk about it. But her mom suggests that they could maybe talk about it tomorrow. All she gets in return is a mm, answer. The next morning, Susan asks her if she wants to talk about it. But once again, Lynn refuses. She doesn't want to pressure her and says that maybe it's easier to talk to someone other than her. So she suggests that they bring it up at the next appointment at the BUP. After Lynn leaves for school, Suzanne phones her teacher, asking to keep a watchful eye on Lynn, since she was feeling a bit down. Later the same day, when she is out driving, Suzanne gets a phone call from the school. Lynn failed to show up at her second period that day. Suzanne tries to phone Lynn's mobile, but she doesn't pick up. She then decides to turn her car around and drive the 60 kilometers back home to see if she's there. On her way back, Lynn's father calls, saying that there has been a train accident in Kumla. Suzanne becomes angered asking Lynn's father why he is telling her that. He says to Suzanne that he doesn't know why. He just can't explain why he had the urge to call and inform her of this news. 
Susan gets that bad feeling that any parent would. She drives to the scene of the train accident. The fire brigade is there, washing the front of the train with water. Susan sees the black body bag and she stops the car. She gets out of the car and runs towards the firemen, screaming, Is it Lynn? Unfortunately, Susan's motherly instincts are correct. It is her daughter. It is Lynn. On Friday, the 8th of March, 2013, 13-year-old Lynn threw herself in front of the train, taking her own life. Lynn's suicide becomes national news, especially with the revelation that she had been bullied in the lead-up to that heartbreaking day. Family, friends and people from her town lay flowers and stuffed animals close to where she died, in memory of Lynn. Her YouTube site and Facebook page is also full of thoughtful and sympathetic posts. The school is highly criticized in the media. They claim that the school didn't do enough to put an end to the bullying. Other parents come forward, claiming that the school has a bad reputation and there are many issues which have to be dealt with. The day after Lynn's death, her 15-year-old brother is sitting in front of the computer when he suddenly notices something strange. He discovers that Lynn had in fact had two separate Facebook profiles. He thinks that this is really strange. So he manages to access the other unknown profile and begins reading the comments, discussion groups, and forums that Lynn had been posting in. There is one conversation in particular that sticks out. A conversation with a 15-year-old boy. As he reads on, it becomes apparent that this chat helps to explain what was going on in her life in the week before Lynn's suicide. This chat was with someone with the username Bia Larson 97 and had started about one week earlier on the 3rd of March. He had contacted Lynn saying, quote, Saw you on Facebook. Super cute. I'm born in 1997. Name's Benny. But I get called Bia. How old are you? End quote. He says that he is a 15-year-old boy who lives in Falkenberg, on the west coast of Sweden. And he keeps sending her messages filled with compliments. He tells her how cute and nice she is, constantly flattering her. 
after a while, he convinces her to turn on her webcam and pose for him in the nude. He is still showering her with compliments. But as soon as Lynn says she doesn't want to pose in front of the webcam again, he completely changes his tone. He starts to make threats, telling her that if she doesn't do exactly what he wants her to do, he will send the pictures of her to her teacher at school and her handball coach. He's getting more and more aggressive and threatening with his comments. And it becomes very clear from the conversation that Lynn is terrified. Lynn's brother tells his mom about his findings and she contacts the police. The police take her computer and begin a technical investigation of the device. They begin with a search of the username Bia Larson 97 and they get a hit almost immediately. The same name is involved in another investigation in another part of Sweden. A 14-year-old girl had pressed charges against the person behind that same username just months earlier. There is also a second username they find, Pelepashon98, which is of interest to the investigators. That name had also been reported to the police by a young girl. They now have two different accounts using an identical approach to groom young girls. They now believe that this is much bigger than they had originally thought and they are certain that it is one person behind the two usernames. After thoroughly investigating three girls' computers who had chatted with the different online personas, the police eventually manage to find an IP address that leads to the 15-year-old boy. However, the IP address doesn't belong to a 15-year-old boy. It belongs to a 44-year-old man called Joachim Fureblad. Joachim lives just outside Gothenburg, on Sweden's west coast, and is self-employed. Shockingly, he had also previously been a coach for a young girls' youth football team. He had a daughter, around the same age as Lynn, who he had shared custody of with his ex-partner. About four years earlier, he had started a Facebook group called We Who Have Had Enough of Men That Treat Women Badly. The same day that Lynn died, he had posted in the group. His post read, quote, It seems like us men think we have the right to treat women any way we please. You really have to ask yourself 
how these men would react if it was their own mom or daughter there to stand up for them who needed. End quote. Joachim's friends and people close to him, who had described him as a warm and caring person, had a hard time believing what they were seeing when he was arrested by the police on the 13th of March, 2013. He is accused of pretending to be a 15-year-old boy who had been contacting several underage girls and manipulating them into posing naked and performing sexual acts on their webcams. Girls which were roughly the same age as his own daughter. Joachim claims that he is completely innocent and denies the accusations. He even denies ever been in contact with any of the girls. So the police change tactics. They decide to go public with the two usernames in order to see if there are any more victims that they don't know about. Alarmingly, they are right to suspect that there may be more girls that have chatted with him. In total, about 20 girls contact the police. They each tell a story that is almost identical to each other. The police are convinced that they have the guilty man in custody. But there is one big problem. They can't find his computer. And without that, they don't have enough evidence to take the case to trial. During the police interview, Joachim initially claims that his computer had been stolen from a cafe when he left it lying on top of a table whilst he was in the restroom. This supposedly happened just hours before he was arrested, but he doesn't have a good explanation as to why he didn't mention anything about the theft to his good friend, whom he met just a short while after the laptop was allegedly stolen. Nevertheless, events would take a change on the 2nd of April. A group of children are walking around the street in search of their cat, which has gone missing. Under the porch of their neighbor's house, they find something that is wrapped up in a towel. It turns out to be a laptop. Joachim Furublad's laptop. The police seize the computer and begin to investigate. They can see that searches have been made for young teens on various porn sites. Shockingly, he had also made searches on the girls which he had been targeting. What schools they went to, if they were members of any sports clubs, and other things he could use as collateral in the event that the girl 
didn't want to participate in his online sexual demands. He had deleted some programs from the laptop before hiding it under his neighbor's porch, such as Skype and MSN Messenger. But the police managed to restore some of the chat conversations. Some of them are with girls that hadn't come forward and up to that point were completely unknown to the police. When Joachim realizes that the police have found his laptop, he changes his story. He now claims that due to his debts, he was afraid that the bailiffs would repossess his laptop, so he decided to hide it. But after a quick check with the bailiffs, the police confirm that Joachim didn't have any debts, so nobody was coming to repossess his computer or any other possessions. He once again changes his story. This time, he claims that his computer had been hacked and used remotely by an unknown person. He didn't have any explanation as to who had deleted Skype and MSN from his computer or how the alleged remote user could post and use his Facebook account. It's also very suspicious as to why both Joachim and the unknown hacker seems to have the same habit of spelling some words in a certain way. He has no explanation for this. This whole time, he claims that he has had nothing to do with what he's been accused of. As the investigation progresses, it becomes clear that many of the girls he had contacted under his online usernames were girls that he already knew. One of the girls in the investigation was 14 years old when she was contacted by Joachim. The police contacted her after having tracked her IP address from Joachim's computer. She herself hadn't filed any report against Joachim and didn't want to have anything to do with the case. Basically, because she felt embarrassed. It turns out that the contact between her and Joachim hadn't just been confined to the internet. They had also met up in real life. And during their 15 meetings, they had sex. In Sweden, the legal age of consent is 15 years old. Anybody below that age is considered to be a child and cannot legally have sex with anybody older than 15. The police had several discussions with the girl and eventually she agrees to press charges against him. She makes an official statement that she was only 14 years old when they had sex 
According to her, he had a preference for violent sex, sometimes with the involvement of urine. He had once asked her to lock herself in the toilet in school and take a picture and send it to him. He also sent her pictures of his genitals and was threatening to spread pictures of her if she didn't oblige, just as he had done to all the other girls he contacted. Joachim, who admitted to having consensual sex with the girl, says that she had just turned 15. According to him, when they met for the first time, she came to his house. She commented that he looked so old, and he said that she looked so young. He said the whole situation felt uncomfortable, and he didn't want to have sex with her because he realized that she was only 14 years old. So nothing happened that time. Weeks later, he said that he noticed on MSN that it was her birthday, and that now meant that she was 15 years old. So they arranged to meet up again, and this time they had sex. He described her as a fragile and lonely girl who was feeling sad a lot of the time. When the case goes to trial, he is facing 25 charges. Among them is the exploitation of a child for the purposes of sexual posing and severe sexual assault of a child. He is also charged with child rape for when he met up with the 14-year-old for sex. He is, however, not charged with causing the death of another because the prosecutor doesn't judge that to be legally possible, even though it's clear that this was probably the main reason as to why Lynn decided to end her life. Despite this decision, Lynn's mother decides to attend the trial. She wants to see him, the man who destroyed her family. She sat there every day, staring at him in disgust, whilst he sat there denying everything. When the initial trial ends on the 4th of November 2013, Joachim is not charged for child rape. This is because they cannot prove beyond reasonable doubt that he had sex with the girl when she was 14 years old. It is basically her word against his, so the charge is dropped. He was only convicted for the sexual assault of a child and the exploitation of a child for the purposes of sexual posing. He is sentenced to two years in prison. 
regarding the claim he made about his computer being used remotely by someone else. The police never managed to entirely disprove that this could be the case, even though it is highly unlikely. They could, however, prove beyond reasonable doubt that he was in fact the man behind the username Bia Larsson 97. After appealing in February of 2014, he receives a longer punishment and is sentenced to three and a half years in prison. He is released on the 14th of July 2015 after serving just two-thirds of his sentence. He was very unhappy with the way his case was handled and he applies for his case to be reviewed in the Supreme Court. However, this appeal is denied. Lynn's mother now works with making parents and children aware of the dangers they can face online. She wants to do anything she can to prevent this from happening to another young girl or boy. Every year, on the 8th of March, Lynn's family have a gathering in the memory of their daughter. A daughter whose chance to succeed in life was cruelly taken out of her own hands. Thank you.